Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. This midterm election is getting more and more real every hour of the day. We only have two days left of early voting. Early voting ends uh, uh, tomorrow across the state. And then, of course, Election Day itself next Tuesday. So uh, candidates are really now at a frantic pace in trying to cover as much ground as possible as uh, they uh, look for votes uh, across Georgia. So I want to get right to our panel and start talking about uh, some of the stories that are making news today. It's Thursday, which means my partner from the AJC is the boss himself, the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Mr. Kevin Riley. How are you, Kevin? And Kevin, I just want to say right now, I'm sorry about uh, your Cleveland uh, baseball team. They did not get uh, uh, to the World Series, but the way uh, Pittsburgh is playing right, or Philadelphia is playing right now, wouldn't have made much difference anyway. Well, thanks, Bill, for expressing that that sentiment. I, I really appreciate it. It's great to be here today, and it's just hard to believe that the ele- this election is almost here already. It's been, it's been so quiet. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us. Stephen Fowler is back with us. Stephen is a political reporter for GPB News, and also um, is the voice behind, and I think the producer as well, a Battleground Ballot Box, a terrific podcast uh, that you can get on any platform uh, where you get your podcast. And Stephen, this is the first chance we've had to congratulate you. You just won a what they call a Gabby Award, the Georgia Association of Broadcasters Award for a Battleground Ballot Box, right? That is right, for uh, Best Podcast, and uh, it has been a long, long road from the beginning of that. Uh, some reason, we were doing it twice a week when it started, but uh, I look forward to uh, maybe one day being able to sunset that into more normal election stuff. <laughs> uh, Stephen, uh, when's the next one coming out, and what do you cover? Probably the next one will be after the election with a more in-depth breakdown of what the heck happened, uh, what runoffs, if any, we're going to deal with, and a bit of a preview of what this uh, risk-limiting audit that we'll see uh, following this election will look like. The, uh, the, the vote audit. Thank you for that. Um, we're also joined again today by Senator Sonia Halpern, a Democrat, 39th District. Um, Sonia, your district, I think that's I'm right, it's like stretches for 30 plus miles north and south you go all the way from down to union city i think you have east point south fulton and you come all the way up to the you come all the way up to the northern border of atlanta i do that is right good morning uh mine is a north to south district looks very much like a skinny snake with its mouth open but i do i stretch from buckhead (laughs) all the way down to union city and it's also one we, of the most have, socioeconomically diverse districts in the state. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, we should say that um, you have been able to have a relatively uh, relaxed midterm election. You don't have a Republican opponent. You're unopposed. So we could already I, announce the outcome of your race. <laughs> yes, gratefully. <laughs> that is true. 
I'm still encouraging everybody to get out and vote, however, and vote all the way down the ballot. Yeah. Leo Smith, I saved you for last because I want to spend just an extra minute or so with you. Leo, Republican political consultant um, and uh, and also uh, the CEO of Engage Strategies, a government relations group that he founded. But Stephen, I mean, Leo, just for a moment, um, talk about the work you're doing at the Carter Center right now. You are the co-leader of the Georgia Democracy Resilience Network which was established uh, to, uh, for the Carter Center to try to get engaged with making sure that our elections are run uh, smoothly without lots of charges and allegations about fraud and the like. Uh, you tell us a little bit more specifically what you're doing with that organization. Well, thank you, Bill. You know, back in 2012, when I was active with the Georgia Republican Party and as executive with the party, I started Engage Futures Group as a bridge builder on Americans Divide. And that's why now as an executive with the party, this need, obviously, we see um, has come become very real to all of us. So we're partnered with American institutions like the Carter Center with this expertise being applied here in the U.S. in a cross-partisan, trust-building, reassuring way. And so even as I listened to President Biden last night, our team, uh, cross-partisan Republicans and Democrats, were listening to that for homework so that we can engage here in Georgia to make sure that we have peaceful transfers of power and that we have trust about our election results. Um, you also have uh, crafted a statement uh, that uh, is uh, you have asked candidates on the ballot to sign uh, it's called a candidate uh, statement for trusted election principles for trusted elections. Among other things, it asks candidates to sign a document saying they will accept the outcome of the election. And yes, and setting those norms amongst our candidates is part of this project, the Democracy Resilience Project. Meaning, um, we need we know that Americans expect our candidates to live up to their values, and you know, a peaceful transfer, accepting the results, is part of the American values. And so, you know, both Kemp, uh, Governor Kemp, and Stacey Abrams were noted by Washington Post from the last debate um, that they both said yes and absolutely to those candidate principles. They are two of our top face cards um, as we move into November 8th. Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit later uh, about the ongoing uh, concerns about the integrity of, the, of our elections, especially uh, in light of uh, President Biden's speech last night. But let's start, um, Kevin Riley, by looking at the extraordinary um, turnout we've had in early voting. Now well over two million people have cast ballots in the election, uh, most of them in person, of course, a much smaller turnout in terms of absentee ballots being sent in. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the implications of that, Kevin Riley. Mark Nisi at your place has spent a lot of time reporting on it. And he, he published a story the other day uh, in which he raised the question, if we've got such amazing turnout, what about all these um, accusations by Democrats that SB 202 was suppressing uh, the vote? Kevin Riley, will you start us off? Well, of course, it's in the uh, eye of the beholder. Uh, SB 202, right? It, it, did all the attention encourage people to come out and be more aware 
or are there things that ultimately will result in people not being able to vote? I mean, the, the governor endlessly repeats his line about, uh, you know, it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. He never mentions that no one's ever really tried to cheat. And then uh, Stacey Abrams is out there, and I've tortured my share of metaphors, okay, but I'm still trying to figure out this. More people in the water does not prove there are fewer sharks statement. I don't know exactly what that means. So even the candidates at the top of the ticket can't find common ground on what this uh, SB 202 has done. Stephen Fowler, you really followed the uh, progress of SB 202 very closely. You wrote a piece, which is still available on our website. And, Natalie, we ought to find a link to it because I think people would really like to read it right now. But, uh, Stephen, you know, when the debate was going on, although Democrats uh, said that many of the uh, uh, measures in the bill were going to suppress the vote, there was also this counter-argument that perhaps SB 202 would inc- drive Democratic uh, voters to c- turn out at the polls to overcome the obstacles. Talk to us about that, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, there's really multiple factors at play. And when we talk about voting and we talk about election access and election laws, it really is complicated. There were things that were in the 98-page election law that did make it harder for people to vote using certain methods. There were also things in the bill that did make it easier for certain methods to be used. And then there were plenty of things that changed how elections officials did their job that ultimately, ultimately at the end of the day, probably didn't impact voters at all. It's very hard to say that the law is suppressing or is not suppressing the votes because we're talking about hypotheticals. You know, what if the absentee ballot law wasn't in place and maybe you had half a million people vote absentee again instead of 250,000? You, you can say that, but you can't really definitively prove things. Also, what if before SB 202 and things like that, maybe we would have only had 3 million people turn out instead of 4 million? Like, it's hard to play games like that. But really, the way that I've tried to do election coverage and tried to get people to think about elections is that voting as a customer service story. And from a customer service perspective, Georgia changed its voting laws in many ways that made it harder for certain people to cast the same ballot than they did in previous elections. And for many voters with the absentee rules with 2020 and the pandemic and things like that, SB 202 made people have to do more work to cast the same ballot, but also open the door for people to do less work to cast the same ballot. So, I mean, it's complicated. Yeah, Sonia, as the Democrat on the panel today, uh, are you concerned that SB 202 is having an impact on Democratic chances across the ballot? this year? Uh, I I wouldn't say broadly that I'm worried about that, but I'll kind of echo what Stephen just said. I mean, I think that there are places that SB 202 has absolutely impacted people. If you look at the part of that law that allowed for challenges that any person in Georgia could challenge somebody's uh, voting status, we have seen across the state large numbers of people whose voting rights have been on the line and have had to rely on the county election boards then to decide what's going to happen. I was at a town hall just last week where there was a gentleman with that very situation, and his his um, challenge wasn't going to be heard till the day before Election Day. So there are impacts that have been um, affect, that have in fact affected people. 
And I want to say, too, that maybe the early vote isn't really necessarily where to look. It's also day of, right? You've got a lot Mm -hmm. of people voted already. We don't know how many people in total yet will vote. I know a lot of people personally who only vote day of. And because of the changes to the law in terms of what you can do day of and that you've got to be at your precinct and how provisional ballots work, we could see more of those um, challenges with people on Election Day itself. Leo, we also don't know what the impact post-election could be, uh, given that uh, among the provisions in this law are those that would allow for the state, essentially, to take over county election apparatus if they feel there has been uh, some abuse by the county election officials, fraud of, that they, the legislature considers to be um, worth a takeover. So there's still that. But at the same time, let's say, also add, Leo, that, that uh, early voting, uh, one of the things that the law does is it gives people a chance to vote on more weekends than they've had previously. And that strikes me as a good thing. Yeah, it is very true. And I think uh, Governor Kemp even mentioned that we were in early voting when New York's polls were still closed. And Georgia does have to do some things that are quite advantageous to its citizens for voting. And the biggest thing is, uh, and a couple of things that have been mentioned already, sometimes we talk about these things. These are pre-gaming and post-gaming things for the campaigns to have excuses as to why they didn't have the results they wanted. We have to be careful about that. The biggest thing about voters being challenged, voters listening today need to know that if you feel that your ballot's been challenged, if it has been challenged, cast a ballot anyway at that precinct. A challenge can intimidate you, but it does not stop you from voting. The hurdles in front of you because of administrative changes doesn't stop you from voting. Vote. Stephen, um, let's talk about about challenges. Sonia already brought it up. The the law does allow any Georgian to file as many challenges as she or he wants to of a voter registration. I think the number of challenges has reached about 65,000 statewide, which gives, of course, a lot of work to local election officials. Um, 3,200 of them... uh, may be legitimate, although those 3,200 people will have an opportunity to prove uh, to their registration is, in fact, uh, accurate. So Georgia's voter rolls, it's important to know that they are basically an active, living, breathing uh, database. There are constantly things being added and removed and people moving away and people moving in and people just moving within the state. And so there are a couple key snapshots in any given point of the year where the voter rolls matter, and it's the registration cutoff for the election. And then there are certain points in certain years where the state does list maintenance and kind of pruning of people that uh, moved away and maybe haven't updated their registration and things like that. Georgia has actually some of the cleanest voter rolls in the country in part because they've joined something called ERIC, which is this multi-state information sharing thing where, Bill, if you were to move to Virginia for some reason, we'd be sad. But then when you register to vote in Virginia, then Virginia says, hey, Georgia, we've got somebody that looks like they're registered in your state registered here. And then you could be removed from Georgia's voter rolls. And they send an email or a postcard to confirm. And so Georgia's voter rolls are already pretty clean. And so these challenges are just adding a lot of work for elections officials 
They're not finding people who are dead or moved away. And they're really just an intimidation tactic that I suspect the legislature will probably revisit after the way they've been rolled out this year. Well, that'll be interesting to see. We should say that these challenges are primarily Republican-motivated, um, challenging uh, voters who they imagine would tend to vote Democratic. Um, all right, let's move on. Kevin Riley, uh, as editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, you know that uh, this state is getting an enormous amount of attention in the national media uh, because it looks as if it's possible that once again Georgia will decide whether the United States Senate is controlled by Democrats or Republicans. The Warnock-Walker race is the hottest, perhaps the hottest Senate race in the country. There are a few others, obviously, that are important as well. Uh, But we're going to be watching this very carefully all the way through Election Day and uh, maybe a few days after the election, depending on how close it is. Without question, I mean, I I think that uh, a lot of uh, political reporters, including ours, and I'm going to guess Stephen, are hoping against all hope that there won't be a runoff in the race. But I'm sorry, Stephen, I would not look to Tuesday uh, thinking you're finally going to get to sleep in, say, Thursday or Friday. I think uh, we are going to end up in that runoff, and it's going to be another month of um, endless television ads, crazy spending, uh, and you know, whether it comes down to the to the control of the Senate, I mean, that remains to be seen, of course, to see what happens on Tuesday. But um, I, it doesn't, you know, Stephen, help me out. Doesn't seem to be much question about whether someone's going to be at that fifty percent mark, right? Well, uh, you know, I I have a bit of a different take on things, and I know there, uh, like, I, I think it's possible that I mean, really, there's four outcomes or, or four outcomes. The governor's race and Senate race have uh, people win outright. The, the governor's race goes to a runoff, the Senate race goes to a runoff, or somehow, God forbid, they both go to a runoff. I mean, uh, what we've seen here is in the polling and in a lot of the early voting data so far that it's going to be very, very close between deciding somebody winning outright and going to a runoff. And I think, uh, you know, there are plenty of people, even on both campaigns, that hope that there is no runoff and no December 6th election. But I wouldn't rule out the possibility that Brian Kemp could win outright and that Raphael Warnock could win outright or that both of them get held under 50. All right, um, Leo, let's talk very specifically about the messaging that we're seeing on the airwaves and out on the stump. Primarily, uh, uh, we'll we'll talk about the fact that Walker uh, has tended to be on the attack against Warnock a little bit more aggressively than Warnock with Walker, although Warnock is starting Uh, to ramp up his attack. So, Leo, um, what I'd like to do, I want to play you the audio of an ad, um, and this is number two, Natalie, in which uh, the Walker forces are attacking Warnock for the usual reasons, but this is one of their closing ads of the campaign. Under Democrat control, massive inflation, crime-ridden neighborhoods, parents silenced, police targeted, chaos at the border, a weaker America, and a failing president. Two years ago, we were strong, respected around the world. The families were stronger, too. Then Joe Biden came along. It's time to take our country back, start thinking about greatness again. I'm Herschel Walker. I approve this message and humbly ask for your vote on Tuesday. Um, Leo, on the stump in St. Mary's yesterday, Herschel Walker 
said uh, he said something that Democrats are saying too. He said we got to get this election turned around to get it on the right track. Otherwise, we're not going to recognize this country. He said I think Joe Biden in charge of the White House is the biggest threat to democracy I can think of. Raphael Warnock's been standing by his side every day. And then Walker went. He called Warnock a Marxist and accused. Uh, Warnock of wanting to, quote, get rid of the police, which, of course, isn't true at all. But this, this, this campaign has uh, gotten really, really aggressive, and, and Walker's been pretty aggressive on the stump for quite a while now. Absolutely. The campaigns are both very, very aggressive. Uh, Walker's, um, his playbook comes from, you know, partly being influenced by Donald Trump. And so certainly he's going to go down rabbit holes with some some extreme comments here and there. But he starts out very strong. Inflation is the biggest thing that is driving energy um, and concern about crime is one of the big things we see. Just looking at another state, New York has a, 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 an election that's close just because of crime. And so, you know, that, that's just something that's real. We got to this point in our show today and we finally mentioned inflation. It is the bigger biggest driver of older voters turning out early in Georgia that we see. And Herschel hit that right away. Um, Sonia, let's look at the other side of this. Um, the Warnock campaign has run attack ads for quite some time now. Um, and, and they have a new one up on the air uh, this week. And by the way, Sonia, I, I'll add this. I want to play audio from that TV spot. But Rick Dent, who has spent a lot of time on the show as our TV ad expert, sent me a note last night pointing out that the Warnock campaign has something like $5 million of TV time in the final week or so of the election. And one of the points that Rick made to me was, that's the budget that most Senate campaigns for years had for an entire election cycle. So, Sonia, let's listen to the latest um, Warnock ad in which they summarize in their final arguments uh, uh, charges they've had uh, against uh, Walker for some time. Number one. See why Herschel Walker's own campaign aides call him a pathological liar. Read Before you decide about Herschel Walker, look up the facts. See why Herschel Walker's own campaign aides call him a pathological liar. Read how his own son says Walker threatened to kill him and his mom making them move six times in six months, running from his violence. Look at all the police reports and how the violence and lies continue. Then decide, should Herschel Walker represent you? George Honor's responsible for the content of this ad. So, Sonia, that's a pack ad. That's not from the Warnock campaign. Um, but here's the question. Um, Walker, these accusations against Walker, these uh, charges about his past, have been rampant in the campaign for a long, long time, and yet they don't seem to have had an impact, if we believe all the polling, on how close this race is. Yeah, I, I, do, I can't explain why they don't have, haven't seemed to have the impact in the polls, but I think the argument that Walker and the folks that are backing um, I'm sorry, the folks that are backing Warnock and the case that's being made by Senator Warnock's campaign is that, you know, th there is room, perhaps, for us to think about the, the person that we're actually hiring for the job beyond just the policies. 
And so I think that's kind of the case that's being made. Is this a person who's got the curiosity to be a good senator for the state? Can this person represent us well? Um, or do they have the competence? Do they have the ability? Can they be somebody kind of regardless of the policy that you believe in that you would feel good about representing Georgia? So that's kind of the case that's trying to be laid out as a reminder to voters that this is somebody who's that Walker is certainly somebody who's had um, some personal struggles, some of which have been major and are in the public sphere from Walker himself. Kevin? Uh, you know, to me, it's it's always interesting to pull way back, uh, you know, as Leo, I think, was doing and saying, um, what, you know, what are the real themes here, right? So we know that those pack ads are attacking Walker personally, where he is most vulnerable. And then Walker is going at issues that, um, you know, are in his favor, it, no matter how he represent them, represents them. So when you're the party out of power, talking about the good old days of two years ago, sounds good in an ad. But look, I can remember two years ago, my memory's not all it could be, but weren't we in a pandemic and wasn't crime worse two years ago? I think, in fact, that's true. And then the other thing is he's going at the economic stuff because every single day Americans are looking at the price of gas 15 times on their drive to work, and it seems awful high. And when you're an average person who has no choice but to fill up your tank, and you are unhappy about it, there's only one thing you can really do. You sure can't quit driving. You sure can't, you know, rail, uh, do anything about what the oil companies are doing, but you can go vote against who's ever in charge to make a statement. And I think that's what is, if Herschel wins, Herschel Walker wins this election, that will be why. All right. um, Leo, last comment before we get to the break. Thanksgiving is coming upon us. Let's talk turkey here. I've been trying to find a turkey. It's hard, and they're super expensive. This hurts Americans. They will feel that pain, and it matters to their families. All right. Well, let's take one more step before we go to the break. Stephen Wright, uh, uh, Stephen Fowler. Uh, we know that um, bad economic time, well, inflation, the economy is not doing that badly right now, but inflation certainly is affecting everyone in the state and the country. Um, but uh, it, it feels as if that uh, Democrats have not done the job that they uh, might be at least able to do in pointing out that inflation is usually out of the control of the party in power, and that, in fact, Republicans have not offered very much in the way of specifics about how they would solve inflation if they win control of Congress. I think you have heard that message some from Raphael Warnock and other Democrats. I mean, you certainly heard it last Friday night when former President Barack Obama was campaigning in College Park. I mean, his closing message on behalf of Democrats is things may be bad, but Republicans aren't telling you how it's getting better, which is, I think, a more honest message than what Uh, the White House and what many other Democrats in office have been pushing at the federal level. And so the other thing, too, is that, you know, inflation is a top issue. I mean, abortion is a top issue for some people. But I think oftentimes when we talk about what motivates voters, we flatten it down to a 2D single issue perspective, like people can't evaluate multiple things at the same time. And so while inflation is an issue, 
And while inflation is an issue for Democrats as well, what we've also seen is that uh, other economic issues and other political issues also guide how people cast their votes. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we have a lot more uh, to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, State Senator Sonia Halpern, Stephen Fowler, and Kevin Riley on today's edition of Political Rewind. Um, Kevin, Stephen made the point right before the break that it was uh, former President Obama who was start, who hit on uh, inflation as an issue that Democrats ought to uh, be able to run on to some extent. He told a crowd here, as Stephen told us, that uh, Republicans don't seem to have an answer for it that they put forward during the campaigns. Um So given that that's true, I want to talk about whether or not Democrats have found the right message to win the votes that they need in many of the races on the ballot. And and let let me talk about this as a starting point. We've spent a good amount of time on this show talking about the significance for Stacey Abrams, for Raphael Warnock, of turning out the black vote. But the Wall Street Journal just released its most recent poll uh, this morning or late yesterday. And here's an important uh, figure in that poll, and I'm going to read directly from their story on this. White suburban women, a key group of midterm voters, have significantly shifted their support from Democrats to Republicans in the closing days of midterm campaigning because of rising concerns over the economy and inflation. The new survey shows that white women living in suburban areas who make up 20% of the electorate now favor Republicans for Congress by 15 percentage points. And the journal points out that that is a move of 27% away from Democrats since the Wall Street Journal's last poll in August. So given that, Kevin, the question becomes whether or not Uh, Republicans have done a better job finding the right issues um, in this campaign. I absolutely think you're right, Bill. Um, You know, the only question, of course, is this is a national poll, right? So we don't know if there's some nuance or something going on in Georgia, you know, say around the abortion law or say around Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnack. I mean, so there are some things that that could go on. But look, you know, we know that the governor, who I think is the best example of, of, of what the Republicans have done, which is he's only talked about the economy. He, he he barely says anything about anything else. And he connects Stacey Abrams to the economy, to an unpopular president. And I just think that when you stick with one message and you keep repeating it and you repeat it often enough, you know, people, at least they hear it and understand it, even if they don't agree with it necessarily. But they have done that. And I think the Democrats have been less clear. What is the most important issue? They had really, they placed a big bet on abortion. And right now, that looks like it was the wrong bet. 
Sonia, I think Kevin makes a very good point. This was a national poll. It is not a Georgia poll. And here in Georgia, there are mitigating uh, factors in terms particularly of that of that Senate race, because we don't know how white suburban women are reacting to all of the charges uh, of the way in which Herschel Walker in his lifetime has uh, mistreated uh, women. So we don't know the answer to that. But the larger question about whether uh, Democrats didn't put the right emphasis on the economy and inflation is still relevant. Yeah, the abortion issue was certainly thought to be an animating issue, because what we knew for sure is that 70 percent of Georgians actually believe that we should leave Roe v. Wade alone. And so on its own, we know that it's very unpopular, the decision to change that law and put the decisions back down to the states and therefore enact the law that was passed here in 2019. Um, What was not clear, which I think some of the polls and some of this information that we're getting now is when put into a larger consideration set, how does abortion wait against everything else that people decide when they go to vote? So um, women are, I think, going to be a key to um, what ends up happening come next Tuesday and the final vote tally. And we yet to see how that actually translates here in Georgia, though um, you have started to hear even Stacey Abrams has started to talk. You heard it a lot in the, the last debate, certainly driven by questions more about the economy. We heard it at that rally. Uh, in College Park last Friday as well. So there are other things that we have also been talking about, health care, Medicaid expansion. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we'll see, we'll have to see how that actually activates. The polls don't mean anything until we actually get that final poll, which is the result uh, following Tuesday's election. So, Stephen, we, I think it's fair to say, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that we have different circumstances uh, happening in the U.S. Senate race and in the governor's race. Much of the Senate race, uh, the issues are driven by national uh, uh, concerns. It's a, it's a nationalized race. There are a somewhat different dynamics in the Georgia governor's race, although we know that, the, that inflation can have an impact on voters here as well. Uh, but given that, um, to what extent do you think um, the uh, Democrats, you know, the Abrams campaign, uh, have put too much emphasis on, uh, say, abortion right now? The last time that Stacey Abrams ran for governor, expansion, full expansion of Medicaid was a crucial issue. Health care was the issue for her. Uh, this time around, she's got a multitude of issues. Stephen? Well, I think first, I mean, Medicaid expansion is still the number one platform plank that Abrams has put out. I mean, she's tied in everything from uh, education policy to roads and bridges back to Medicaid expansion. But I, I think I think people are somewhat missing who is most impacted by talking about abortion and what voters are motivated by abortion. You know, when you look at the Republican base and the Democratic base in the state of Georgia, those people have their feelings about abortion, but are also probably going to vote for, you know, they're going to show up and vote and they're going to vote for these candidates anyway. I mean, there is a very small slice of the electorate that has been targeted with these abortion uh, messaging on both parties. And I think it remains to be seen. I mean, I've heard anecdotally, of course, 
a lot of women in Atlanta's northern suburbs that are typically white suburban women that have been on board with the Abrams messaging about the abortion ban and are supporting Abrams or supporting Warnock because of that. And those are the people that could end up at the margins moving the election to a runoff or into different territories, more so than a hardcore Democratic Party-based voter that has strong feelings about abortion and is going to vote anyway. Leo? Yeah, you know, Stephen, I think that you, as well as uh, Professor Charles Bullock at University of Georgia, have you know, mentioned analysis where we're seeing an older voter, a 50-plus-year-old voter turnout at early voting. And so I just think this is bad strategy on the part of Democratic campaigns to use this abortion issue as a new universe of voter galvanizing method. The new universe of voters may not be there as much as they thought there would be. And this early 50-plus-year-old voter turnout, those people are not mostly focused on abortion. Kevin Riley. Hey, Leo, I'm going to follow up uh, with this a question for you, and then I'd like to see what uh, Senator Hoffman thinks about this. So, uh, you know, in the polling, it seems like people are asked what their most important issue is, right? Like, if, I, if they get me on the phone, what's your top issue? And so we know that it's been inflation or the economy, you know, for a long time now. But do, we don't really ask them, what's your second most? So what if abortion is the second most important issue to pretty much a huge chunk of the electorate? Uh, is that a possible? Could it mean something? Is, could that help Democrats? I mean, what do you think? And then, I, then Senator Halpern would jump in. I think that means a lot when it comes to a runoff, especially because then you may have eliminated their primary issue and then their secondary issue in the primary. So if the candidate that had their primary issue um, as their campaign ballot, then if that candidate is gone in a runoff or has has lessened its uh, impact, then it becomes more important in in the um, in the in the runoff. And I think we're gonna. It looks like we're gonna have a runoff with the Walker um, Warnock campaign. Yeah, and generally, right, it's all about who can get their people out to vote. I think that for that question of the, the waiting, it's, it's what I was saying earlier. When you look at the larger consideration set, how do you weight the different factors that mean something to you? And even though it may be that abortion is the number two issue and inflation are, you know, kind of kitchen table issues are the number one, when you go in to vote, what how, how is your identity also going to drive your vote? So, yes, we're going to see more in a runoff, possibly, how that actually impacts. But I do think that I do think that Democrats certainly have been talking very specifically to women and to the men also who love those women and to people who've been in circumstances. And I just think that even if economic woes and issues are really a priority, there is a part to this issue of abortion that will still activate people to maybe vote differently than they might have if they were only using their number one issue as their voting strategy. Stephen, before we get to a break, one last uh, question for you. Um, The polling that we've seen here in Georgia uh, and most of the polls that we've seen from other uh, areas around the country does show that uh, uh, Abrams has, has a challenge to try to beat Brian Kemp. She trails him by an average of about seven points in the real clear averages, although some of the polling they include 
definitely Republican-oriented uh, pollsters. So with that in mind, Stephen, I think that Sonia made a point we've tried to emphasize over and over again, and that's this governor's race is not over until we see the impact of the Abrams uh, turnout the vote effort and the Kemp turnout the vote effort that we still don't know where this race is headed, right? Right. And I mean, and that's why, you know, I've gotten flack from people for suggesting that the governor's race might be more likely to go to a runoff than the Senate's race. But I think you're underestimating that Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams are two of the best effective campaigners that the party has seen in a while. There's massive amounts of money being poured into this campaign. There's massive amount of get out the vote infrastructure that both Kemp and Abrams have put in place before this election that are being activated. And in a state that was decided by 55,000 votes in 2018 and 12,000 votes in 2020, by all indications, it is probably going to be very, very close again, regardless of what polling may say. All right, let's do this. Let's get to the final break of the show when we come back more on Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Stephen Miller was one of Donald Trump's top advisors in the White House. Stephen Miller is the guy who pushed Trump uh, toward an anti-immigration policy that that many considered to have been racist. He was involved in that inaugural speech in which Trump referred to American carnage. And Miller's a guy who members of his own family disowned him because they were so disturbed by uh, much of the rhetoric that he had used. Well, I say all this because Miller has founded an organization called America First Legal. They are running a spot in rural parts of the state of Georgia that when I heard the audio to it, I was stunned. Let's play this spot. Uh, Natalie? When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. When did Kevin Riley? Wow. Um, of course, as a practical matter, we all know that right race underlies a lot of political messaging. Um, you know, there constant conversation and, you know, through the years from campaigns about dog whistles and, you know, all these kind of things. But somehow we've gotten to a point where it's okay to be fairly open about exploiting people's um, tendencies toward uh, bigotry or their fears about uh, changes in their country. So it's, um, it's a scary thing. And um, I, again, I, as you point out, we're not seeing those ads in Metro Atlanta or and elsewhere in the state. I think that's an important point, Stephen. To the best of my knowledge, this spot is not running a North Georgia's TV market, but it is running in rural parts of the state. And it strikes me that it is an effort to increase white rural turnout against Democrats. No, actually, I did see this on TV the other night after the Obama rally, went out to dinner afterwards, uh, and it was about 11 o'clock at night or so on a uh, during the World Series uh, on one of the TVs. 
in the sports bar we went to dinner too. So I think this is running a lot of places. And it's the type of message that appeals to a very, very, very narrow slice of the electorate and generally tends to backfire more than it does succeed. But what you have seen is uh, less bullhorn versions of that message creep into campaigns of some candidates, particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Northwest Georgia Congresswoman. So this isn't an isolated incident in the fact that it is part of the messaging of some uh, hard right-wing candidates that you're seeing, but it is not something that is uh, being broadcast widely beyond these ads. Sonia? I mean, I think dog whistles have become bullhorns, and none of us, none of us should accept that. I mean, part of the challenge right now in general with government and politics is that it is so hyper-partisan. And when you take um, ads like that and add them to the mix, you know, you are definitely inciting all kinds of emotions and all kinds of people across the state of Georgia. And none of that is good, right? The end result of all of that is not good. You'll fire up people to be exceedingly angry. And then what does that lead to? You'll fire up people's fear in a bigger and broader way. And what does that lead to? The thing is that things are already partisan enough. And ads like that add a completely different level of toxicity to the environment that's not healthy for any of us and does not help to entrust uh, more belief in our government, in our candidates in general, or in general in the democracy. The issue of democracy is one that both Republicans and Democrats, for different reasons, have said is, is, um, is, a, is a factor and, and a concern. You know, we, oh. Bill, last night, President Biden said that on November 8th, democracy will be on the ballot. I disagree. Democracy is on the ballot 364 days of the year outside of Election Day. And politics is downstream of culture. And the fact that we have an environment, we have a, 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 a legal environment that allows that kind of dog whistling is speaking to a fragility in our system as well as in our people. And so we have to be bigger than just Election Day. And after we vote, we must deal with the fragility of people, white people, black people, all people. And part of the Democracy Resilience Project does also start to address that kind of issue, that this is bigger than Election Day. People are tapping into people's fears on race and using that for political gain. There should be a political ad tax, a political syntax for the damage that kind of advertising does. All right. I just want to point out, number one, this is this spot does not advocate for any individual candidate, nor does it speak as a Republican Party uh, 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 spot. Uh, nevertheless, we know that its target uh, tends to be people uh, to uh, be an effort to demonize uh, uh, Democrats and encourage uh, uh, voting uh, for Republicans. Uh, I should point out, Stephen, you saw it in the media market here. I hadn't. Um, I got an email from one of our listeners saying that it's running digitally on Microsoft's platform. I got another note from somebody who said, oh, I live in Gwinnett County. I saw it on the air here. So it is, in fact, running in the uh, North Georgia media market. Um, 
One last thing that I'd like to talk about uh, with a couple of minutes that we have left, um, it's the, uh, it, and that's that uh, we continue to relitigate the 2020 uh, presidential election. Um, emails that, uh, that John Eastman, the lawyer for Donald Trump, was forced to release. Remember, we learned in the January 6th committee hearings that it was Eastman who kind of engineered the plot to create slates of fake electors in states like Georgia to uh, get uh, Mike Pence uh, to reject the, uh, the electors who, who were the legally in, uh, empowered electors and give Trump another term in office. We've now learned uh, that, that Eastman and other lawyers for Trump thought that the only key, the one key uh, to winning the uh, election was to bring a lawsuit that would be heard first by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who, who in fact oversees cases brought uh, in Georgia. And their feeling was that they might be able to get Thomas to take on a lawsuit that rejected George's votes to agree with that and begin the process of overturning the ballots here. Uh, Stephen, once again, Georgia becomes like the key state in terms of all of these efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Absolutely. And I mean, we knew it pretty much in real time that it was the core piece. It was uh, one of the states where it seemed like there was the friendliest legislature, even though the legislature was not that friendly towards uh, overturning the election. It was one where it was controlled by Republicans and theoretically should have acquiesced to these demands and these half-baked claims, but it wasn't. And now, I mean, we have email evidence that some people knew that maybe some of the things they said weren't exactly true at the time, which will be crucial both in the January 6th committee hearings, but also here in Fulton County, the district attorney investigation into efforts to overturn the election here. Obviously, we should point out that that came to nothing. <laughs> the suit did that particular effort did not go forward, although we know the Trump people filed lawsuits everywhere in the country to overturn the results of the election. Um, we are just about out of time. Uh, but before we finish up, uh, Stephen, I, I want to ask you, as uh, one of our two journalists on this panel, what are you going to be paying the closest attention to on the final days of the race leading up to and including uh, Tuesday night? Well, it'll be early voting numbers. We should anticipate at least two and a half million in-person early votes and then looking at who shows up on Election Day. I mean, if it's a heavy turnout on Election Day, what does that mean? If it's a light turnout, what does that mean? We see different parts of the state, different party familiar areas are showing different turnout patterns in previous elections. And so that kind of puts a big old question mark as to what it all means. But one quick thing is that uh, the AJC has a story, and I'll have a story up as well, about changes to election night and the vote counting process, which should make it easier and faster, but still we have a close election. Um, Kevin Riley, one of the things that means is that if, uh, if, it, if the polls are right, that Warnock and Walker are in a statistical dead heat now, uh, and neither of them can get over 50 percent, we may be waiting for at least a couple of days before we know the outcome of that race. you got about 10 seconds to respond. Yeah, and, and that's not ideal because I think people feel like they should know that night what happened and the longer it extends, it invites speculation on the, uh, uh, on the outcome and the, and the possibilities of fraud, which is a good. 
the boss of the AJC. Kevin Riley gets the last word in this edition of Political Rewind. Thank you, Kevin. Senator Sonia Halpern, a pleasure to have you on the show. Congratulations on winning your race. Leo Smith and Stephen Fowler, thank you, too, for being with us today. We're out of time. We're back tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, get a flu shot, and maybe a COVID booster while you're at it. Bye, everybody.